Hello, Ride On listeners. This week, we have another panel conversation from Micromobility America. Uh, this panel was incredibly important to the event, and I think overall starts to get at things that we are going to increasingly deal with in 2024 and beyond. And that's the idea of sharing the road with robots or autonomous vehicles. In this panel, um, hosted by Edward Dietemeyer, uh, the, the amazing author and reporter, he talks with two Waymo engineers along with a public safety advocate about the idea of sharing the road with robots and what it means for the future. There's been a lot of controversy, specifically among uh, bicycling and pedestrian communities, along with unions and driving communities, car driving communities, about what these robots mean and where we're going. What is unequivocal, though, is the data that shows autonomous vehicles like Waymo's are incredibly safe uh, and have uh, almost an impeccable driving record. And comparing it, of course, with human drivers, uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30x uh, safer. So what does the future look like for people that want to choose not to be in a car, but want to walk and ride? And how can we make it as safe as possible for them while allowing people that prefer cars, of course, to get around cities as well? So I hope you enjoy this discussion. There'll be many more, including, of course, coming up in 2024 at Micromobility World and Micromobility Europe, where we'll dive deeply into AI and the changing nature of roads and robots alongside uh, driving alongside of all of us riders. With that, here's Edward. And so I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've been following the autonomous vehicle space for quite a while now. Um, my podcast, The Autonicast, we discuss it endlessly. Uh, it's been a, a wild ride since we started in, I don't know, 2016 or so. Um, and the last year or so, uh, here in San Francisco in particular, um, I took my first ride in a Waymo here. Um, it was a couple of years ago now. And and riding in San Francisco is, is amazing. But there's also been a lot of discussion and controversy and politics and all kinds of other things going on. And and I think like the, the panel that was just here really um, touched on a lot of, I think, some really important themes. And I think that this discussion is going to really help us dig into sort of you know, in, in concrete terms, what it means for an AV company to come into a city and to, you know, try to earn trust and try to work with, you know, the, the landscape that they find. Um, I, you know, I live in a, like a walkable neighborhood, but I love to, to, to take truck trips. And I recently saw a sign that I kind of wanted to, to start with here. It was, a, it was a share the road sign. And we all see these all the time, especially in places like Portland and San Francisco. And there's always with a bicycle. But the one I saw, this was out in the backcountry in Idaho, and it was a share the road sign with a horse. And there was something about that, about the fact that, like, it doesn't matter where you live, like, we all want to find the right balance of, like, modes. And, you know, historically, you think about it, like, cars are what replaced horses. And there's still places where that that sharing the road conversation continues to be negotiated over a century later. And I think it's important to to have that historical perspective when we talk about autonomous vehicles, because I think this is something that's going to be developing, you know, over the next century rather than over the next like one year or five years or 10 years even. Um, but I think it's also really important. Uh, and, and you know, for a level four company, this is this is really apt that all mobility is local. All the circumstances are local, whether you share the road with cars or horses or or delivery robots like we just heard about in the last panel, whatever it might be. Each circumstance is unique, and as a level four company, you all have to really understand where you're going in order to operate properly in it. And so, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think it, it it gets to so many important issues. But first, I would like to meet the folks that we're going to have this conversation with. I'm sure you all would too. Jenny, please introduce yourself. 
Hi, folks. I'm Jenny Iglesias. I am a software engineer on the planner team. I've been at Waymo for six years, and I've spent uh, the majority of that time working on vulnerable road users, so pedestrians, scooters, cyclists, delivery robots, low-speed vehicles, and horses. And, and just really, really quickly, when you say you're on the planner team, I just want to help folks understand what this tech looks like. When you say you're on the planner team, what, is, what does that mean? How does that, where in the stack are, is your work, you know, going out on the road? Uh, yeah. So there's uh, plenty of systems that run before us that tell us what's on the road, where we are, what our route is, kind of Google Maps level. Um, and then we go and take that and decide how do we position in lane? How much are we braking? When are we accelerating? And so, like, we, the planner is the part that drives the car. Yeah, so really, really important. And, and one of the things I love about AV Tech is that it helps you think about how you drive yourself, right? And you think you sometimes you'll see a video and it's like, oh, well, it's steering and it's braking and accelerating. And that's that's all I do when you drive. And that maybe is all what you do when you consciously drive. But the planning piece of that, you're doing a lot of times subconsciously. And even before that, you're perceiving, you're understanding the world around you and you're planning a route through it that's safe for yourself and everyone else. And it's cool that those things that we do subconsciously in an AB, you have to really think about how do we do this in a conscious way? And and it it's really cool. Anyway, uh, Junhua, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Junhua. Um, I work in Waymo for around eight to, I think seven to eight years. Um, I'm actually coming from perception teams. So we are the upstream of planner team that Jenny was seeing. Um, so the the task that plan, perception team try to serve is that try to provide as much information as possible for, for the planner team to react to all the objects, including the people using the micro mobility devices around us. Um, we do a lot of deep understanding, not just the perceived there is the cyclist. We also understand a lot of attributes of cyclists where they want to be. Um, we send this information to the planning team so that we can react to them properly. Um, yeah, so I I also work very uh, I also have very focused area in the vulnerable road users. Uh, as Jenny mentioned, it's uh, motorcyclists, cyclists, pedestrians, uh, all the people using micro mobility devices, all this uh, all this object. Um, yeah. Okay. So so yeah, so he's working on the team that that figures out everything what's what's around the vehicle, like like what what exists there, and then what are those things, right? And then. That data is what allows the planning team to figure out the path through all that. And again, these are things that we as drivers do almost always very subconsciously. And so it's if you're just used to getting in the wheel, behind the wheel and driving, the kinds of things that these folks are automating um, you know, are, are parts of the tasks that we do subconsciously. So it's a really important thing, I think, to, to understand. And, and it really, again, I love how when I learn about this stuff, how then I go back to driving and like am more conscious about how I do that. Brett, you're the one person here. So you all have something in common. Um, which I want to get to, but first, you're the one person here, the odd man out, along with myself, in that you don't work for Waymo. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. Correct. Yeah, I'm a native San Franciscan. I grew up in the city, cycling from like third grade on, and I might became part of the early trusted tester program. Starting in January, started taking rides, using it for you know everyday things, going to the doctor's appointments, grocery stores, preschool drop off, trying to use it as just like um you know you wouldn't another form of mobility. And yeah, it was pretty cool to just see the cars go from having people in them to no people and then actually being one of those people in the backseat. It's a pretty cool experience. Totally. 
And, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the last panel guests um, said something that I was great. I thought was great, which is that, you know, robots are not entitled to the sidewalk. The reality is robots aren't entitled to anything. Everything we build is built by humans for humans. If robots are coming into that mix, they're the new player. It's up to those robots to find their space where they create the value for us, but also where they respect the things that we as humans need. So I want to start with the context of San Francisco before the robots arrived. Specifically, the, the Waymar robots. There's always been, I feel like, some weird robots or other like crawling around this place probably as long as we've all been alive. But Brett, I want to start with you. And okay, all of our guests are cyclists. All of our guests cycle in or around San Francisco. And so I want everyone to talk about their experience before Waymo, before robotaxis, before robots. What's it like just to cycle or use other forms of micromobility uh, around San Francisco? Is it you know, obviously you do it. Is, are there concerns that you have? You know, what's what's good? What's scary? Sort of what's what's sort of the versus other places? Yeah, I would say San Francisco has come a long way. I think work with the bike coalition and, you know, making it more of a bike friendly city. Um, but in the past, you know, it was always like finding the widest road, you know, early on when I started biking, there's very few bike lanes in the city. So you try and go for parks, you try and find areas where you're just away from the cars. And, you know, over the years, you've started to see more sheroes and, you know, you know, green painted bike lanes, more dedicated spaces. And then layer that on top of that, you know, drivers getting used to, you know, being sharing the road with cars. It was still a little bit sketchy. Like people didn't know, you know, using it as a spot to like drop off people, pick up people. It was, you know, people using it as like a double parking space. So, you know, there was this evolution in terms of like try, starting to learn how to kind of share the road with a lot of the other people. And at that point, seeing like something like Waymo moving was kind of interesting because this is a you know further evolution like okay now there's not people but there's a robot so it was, it was kind of interesting to just see that that progression so so the in some way the the road taxi I mean it was part of a, a process that you saw as a local cyclist as already being sort of ongoing it was it sort of integrates into sort of an evolution that was already taking place yeah and I'd say overall just the city getting more friendly to cyclists which yeah interesting yeah um I didn't cycling a lot in the city, but I do cycling a lot in Montreal around that areas. Um, so one thing I I have a very extensive period where I think it's around eight years ago where I, where I was uh, taking an internship in Waymo. Um, I need to ride a bike around to take around four miles from the Airbnb I rent to the Waymo's office. Um, at that time, I find that. It's a little bit of pressure for me to ride uh, very close to the to the traffic, um, and most of in many roads there is no bike lane. Some roads there are, but there is no physical barriers between me and the, the very fast moving traffic. Um, so I do feel like it's very important for us to make sure um, the interaction are safe, and um, just from my own experience. And around around one month ago, I started to take Wemos car from the uh, Airbnb to Wemos. Um, to to Vimo's office, so but I think that experience is really I, I think it's still really a fun experience for me. Uh, so actually, I'm from LA, but I did live in San Francisco um, briefly, and I was a San Francisco cyclist. And I think the infrastructure there is great. The green lanes, the dividers, the green waves. It like. People are really thinking about different mobility options with that in mind. Um, and 
Uh, now in Los Angeles, I am not a Los Angeles cyclist because there's no bike lanes, there's no protection, there's no social norms for what the cars do around cyclists, and it, I don't feel safe, and I, I don't think I am safe on Los Angeles roads. Yeah, I'm, I can have a hard time imagining doing a lot of, I know people do it, uh, they tend to be kind of young, intense, <laughs> kind of hardcore cyclist types. But but you bring up a really interesting point, right? Which is, and again, like all of these things are local. Each city, each location that you're going to go to is going to be totally different. And um, one of the things that's that's really interesting, so, so just as it's important to understand as Waymo came into San Francisco, there was already a transition towards, you know, kind of trying to be more cycle friendly. Now, I'm sure some think that maybe wasn't happening, you know, fast enough. We can get into a little bit more of that later. But Waymo, you know, came, it came into San Francisco from a place, from operating vehicles in a place that's very, very different, right? And and I've been lucky enough to have rides in in Waymo's in San Francisco, and then also in Phoenix and Chandler area where where you all got your start. And you know, I know in the sort of autonomous vehicle commentator space, there were definitely a lot of people who thought, you know. Waymo is going to start in Phoenix and it was going to be easy mode, right? The weather's always good. The car is all just like car suburbs. You don't deal with a lot of pedestrians, with a lot of a lot of cyclists, a lot of vulnerable road users of all kind. Um, and that that was going to be a real challenge coming into San Francisco. I think your record so far is is pretty amazing, especially in light of that kind of criticism. But I'm curious, like, talk to us a little bit as as both. Um, and actually, I might start with Jim Hawk because he's on the perception side. And it might be interesting to since he's up, up upstream in the stack, let's. Let's let's do it that way. Uh, talk a little bit about how different uh, Phoenix was, and that you know, sort of in that transition, sort of, you know, what were the what was the focus sort of going in initially? What what were you looking at um, in terms of making that transition be a good one? Well, there are really a lot of difference when we transfer from Phoenix to here. Um, one thing is that, as you mentioned, there is a in Phoenix, uh, the weather is good, but it's also hot, so there are a lot not a lot of people outside. In San Francisco, I think we see much, much more cyclist pedestrians outside. Um, and I think it's not just the, the numbers, it's also with the numbers increasing, there is more interactions between cyclist pedestrians with Vimo's card. So we definitely need to understand a bit uh, more of their intentions. For example, for cyclists, they can give us hand gestures, so we need to follow them. Sometimes they don't, um, but they can also have body lens, they have, uh, have gaze. We need to influence from these cues. It's very, very important. And um, perception need to capture them, understand them, and work together with planner to make sure that we can react to them correctly. Yeah. And, and just so, so you're talking about actually reading gestures and things that, that pedestrians are, are making to, to try and communicate with your, with your vehicle. Uh, how hard is that compared to, you know, interacting with a car, right? Like, like I feel like, you know, interacting with a a, a two thousand pound metal vehicle with all these kind of you know capabilities, but also constraints versus the the fine details and things of a of a um yeah of a, a human being making gestures and things like that. Talk about how different those are on a, on a technical level on them. That too. Yeah. Uh, I I can talk quickly from the perception side, and yeah. then I can come from planner side. Um, I think both have both have challenges in different ways. Um. For large vehicles, they are designed to communicate. They have the turning signals, they have flashing lights, they have all these things. Um, we don't really set a very hard rule for cyclists and pedestrians. So they can do 
I know that we have some guidance, um, but they can literally do anything. We really need to understand this diversity. Um, yeah, they can. There's kind of two aspects I want to focus on, which is like they can do a lot of stuff, which is exactly what you said. Like the number of times you've seen, I've seen like a cyclist or scooter crash or somebody drop something and they have to turn on a dime to get it or a, a child just decides they want to go in the exact opposite direction than they were just going in um and so like the kinematics and like where uh how they'll react to things is very different and so the space that we need to give them is very different than a vehicle which can't just you know start moving laterally towards us so there's there was a lot more considerations on like how much how much space do we give them um, but also, since they're less constrained, they, they don't have to be on the road. They can transition from being on the sidewalk. Um, they can be in small spaces. This was a, this is actually one of the things is like SF roads are narrower. We're driving on a lot more roads with parking and delivery vehicles. So we had to build up a whole system to consider like, all right, we already consider the occluded objects, so objects that maybe our sensors can't see because there's a tree or building or something in the way. Uh, for pedestrians, we had to go, all right, there's a tall vehicle. It's not moving. Could someone just appear from there? And so they, they can kind of, uh, pedestrians, vulnerable road users can kind of come from everywhere and making sure our system was robust to that. And and giving proper space when we couldn't clear the space ourselves. And Brett, I want to talk in a minute about about sort of your first experiences interacting with AVs on the road as a as a cyclist. But but before you know, so so what Jay just mentioned the the narrow roads. Um, you know, again, this is one of these things. It's 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 one of these things when you drive. At least I'll speak for myself. When I drive in San Francisco, it's just more stressful than driving other places. And again, we drive in such an instinctive way. We don't always understand what are the things that are stressing us out about it. And again, like taking AV rides and talking to engineers has really helped me understand like what those narrow spaces mean. You get you get trucks double parking or you just get even a truck parked and that occlusion issue where you've got these rows of cars and someone could step out from them at any time and cyclists can get lost in, you know, all kinds of. So I, I'm just curious as a cyclist, like, you know, obviously every cyclist everywhere has to be a defensive driver. Do you think that here in San Francisco, like that's something that you, again, before the AVs came here, do you, do you feel like there's sort of a more, it's more of like a high intensity, like defensive kind of survival thing? And, and then like, how do you kind of deal with that generally? Yeah, I would say with the cycling, I always ride with the mentality that like the drivers don't see you. So in a sense, you're creating this bubble around you of, you know, will the driver do something that you likely suspect? So it's like safety was always like primary on the mind in terms of, you know, how I would ride in like a defensive space. And like with the AVs, that was just like, an, okay, this is something new. It was pretty interesting, like coming up to, I remember coming to like intersection for the first time and a Waymo pulls up and it was, in my mind, it was like a little bit of a standoff, like what's it going to do? I see the cameras, I see the sensors, you know, is this, is it going to, you know, behave like a normal, normal driver? And, you know, it, if anything, it was a very like conservative, very safe, very cautious and, it was interesting, like finally getting inside the car and then like seeing on the screen, you know, what it was seeing. You was seeing all the cars and like the busy intersection. I was seeing every single person get off the bus, little dots. And like seeing that really like reinforced, like, wow, this is like way more. It can keep track of a lot more that's going on than, you know, a distracted driver. So 
pretty quickly. I, I was like, wow, these things, like, I feel pretty safe, you know, knowing these things kind of can keep track of something like so much more than like a busy mom that's like trying to drop off their kids at preschool and a lot of distractions going on. Totally. So you, you bring up a really interesting thing, which is, so there was just another public survey. I've been reading for years, these public surveys about the public's trust in autonomous vehicles. And and this year it was, you know, a couple points lower, the J.D. Power one, it's called the Mobility Confidence and Index. And, uh, but there, in every single other survey, there, every single survey, including this one that I've seen, and this one, it was more dramatic than ever. The difference, it was like 37% confidence level just across the board. You know, but when you talk to people who have ridden one, whether in Phoenix or San Francisco and had that personal exposure, it goes up to almost 70%, right? So like almost doubling the the level of approval. And I think you touched on something that is really central to that, which is as soon as you see what the vehicle can see, you're like, well, I know people aren't seeing anything this well. Do you know what? You're on the perception team. What, what allows just, what is the technology that allows the vehicle to just see so much more than, than a human possibly could? Yeah, so um, I think one thing that is really important is that Waymo learns a lot from a lot of data. So we drive tens of millions of, of mileage in autonomous mode. In simulation, we even have tens billions of um, of data. And and for us, mileage for us to learn the model from. And it's really enjoyable for me to see how the model started to evolve with all the data increasing. So I think this is a really, really important aspect for us to provide a really strong, um, really strong product. And I think another thing is that, as Jenny mentioned, there could be some of a very rare event happens. So for example, a cyclist who is riding in front of Waymo may falling down. Um, it's a very rare event. We need to make sure that Waymo's car are very safe around these cases. Um, we really keep an extra eye on those rare events and try to make sure that the model really learns this. So Jenny, so you you mentioned a really important thing, which is just the sheer number of miles that you're getting out in the real, all and and the more miles you do, the more weird stuff you see and the more you can learn from. And and I always love the, you know, the the turkeys and the just the crazy things that you that that Waymo's uh, uh, end up seeing and and having to figure out how to deal with. Right. Uh, But there's another factor as well, which is that, you know, there's a huge difference between, say, doing a million miles uh, of just like one camera collecting data or even a, maybe a couple, ca- but you all are looking at, and, and as the planner, right, there's a huge difference between looking at data from one sensor type and, at, you know, versus on a Waymo, and I'm going to get the number wrong, it's 28 cameras on the current harbor, so something like that, you know, four radar, a long range LIDAR, at least a couple medium range LIDAR, short range LIDAR. I mean, these are like, serious, serious sensors, Tell, help people understand how that the richness of the data, it's not just the sheer miles of the data, but the richness of that data allows you as a planner to have confidence that you're making, that, that you're helping the vehicle make the right decisions in, in any given situation. Uh, yeah, so we have so many sensors. Um, I don't really know how to instill this very well, but I would say almost on a weekly basis, I am impressed by our perception. I look at something and I'm like, oh, like, why did we make a pedestrian there? And I go forward a couple more steps and it was like, oh, because there was a pedestrian there. And like, all I'm looking at is like the camera and we just have so many additional capabilities with the LIDAR and the radar um, that we have so much more coverage. I actually feel really uncomfortable sometimes in human driven vehicles because I'm like, 
can't look in the car that's to our left and the bike that's to our right and in front of us and oh I don't know if that's pedestrians gonna cut behind or if you're looking at them and like um just knowing we have 360 degree perception all around us at all times and if we're ever have anything blocked we also are very robust to that i'm just like not just there's nothing there it's just, there's nothing there and we well there's not nothing there there could be something there and we use both the perception data and the occlusion data to to drive safely totally and then and some of those sensor modalities are going to be better when it's foggy or when it's dark and all these other so many different challenges and and again in, in narrow streets there's so little margin you know that you really need to know if there's someone um, behind a truck or, or in the fog or, or whatever else. Um, right. It's really interesting. So you said something that, that I think it, it's, I feel like it has to be both like exactly what the AV companies want to hear, but it's also like frustrating because it's like, well, they're kind of conservative and like, it's, you know, you, you work yourself up, whether you're engaging with the AV for the first time in, you know, behind in the seat, right. Or you're encountering it as a cyclist or, or, or whatever else, it feels like almost everyone gets all worked up thinking it's to be some big thing. And then they're like, oh, oh, that that's it. Talk a little bit more about about sort of your interactions and like how you've learned not just what the behavior is, but sort of like how you should relate to them in a way that's different than than ABs. Yeah, I would say consistency is probably the biggest thing. Like as a cyclist, like I typically, you know, for exercise, I'm riding early in the morning. You know, people aren't, you know, lots of many cars on the road toward the evening time you know like people maybe drinking under the influence of driving like you you know you, those things are definitely on my mind in terms of like safety and knowing that you know the waymo it's like this consistent you know it's you know any time of day you know the weather it's it's, it's going to kind of drive in a very consistent way and then you know when you come to an intersection you see one it's it's a little bit more predictable like i know it it's going to act probably in a more conservative way even if i don't necessarily obey you know like the exact rules of the road it's going to kind of interact in a consistent way that you know i can predict and that's same thing like if you're a pack of cyclists that you really trust like you know how it's going to react a certain way and you it's it's predictable it's it's more comfortable totally i mean like like when you're out on the road with human drivers like it, it's not the 90 percent of the time where people are all just sort of like relatively hopefully hopefully it's 90 percent of the time people are relatively on top of things relatively paying attention relatively doing a good job it, but like one time someone does something really erratic and I can like freak you out and totally change how you relate to all cars for like, and so that consistency point, I think that's also a really interesting thing from a rider perspective versus some of the other ride handling things. But, but understanding that from the, the vulnerable road user perspective is really interesting. Planning wise, how do you, you know, what's the, you know, how do you optimize for, for that consistency and, and that sort of like, you know, predictability, what does it trade off with? Um, and, and how do you sort of like really ensure that, you know, you don't because again, you're, you're also you're using probabilistic systems, right? Like AI is is probabilistic, and so there are aspects of of this where you know, so you have to clearly do a lot of work to prevent probabilistic systems from doing something erratic and ruining the trust that Brett has built up over you know a number of uh, and other cyclists, right? Of course, uh, uh, experiences with with robots. Talk about that. Uh, well, part of it is easy. Like we're uh, writing the software, especially the non-ML parts, we know how that's going to work, and that's going to work the same way every single time. Um, and so that we can have a lot of trust in. And 
for any of the ML systems we have, we really put them through the paces. We have those 10 billion miles in simulation. And every time we see something weird, that pedestrian falling over, um, the uh, child running into the road, the um, a scooter doing a U-turn, we go and make more data so we don't just have that one and make sure we're very robust to the case of whatever we saw on the road um and our we validate that software continuously so it goes through more and more rigorous validation um before we put it out on the road and we have this whole uh set of just like we have to be doing well on these and if we're not then <laughs> Junwa and I are probably digging through to find like what went wrong and if the software is still good to put on the road totally and it starts with consistent right uh, perception because if you don't have good perception it's garbage in garbage out right uh and and I want to it's funny because I, I used to re uh, report a lot about like auto manufacturing and that's another it's totally different than this field but it's one of those things where it's like it's all about getting from 5% error rates to 4% error rates to 3%. You know what I mean? Like it's it's all in that like driving down that that margin. And, you know, when you're operating in a place like San Francisco, and I will say like every time I go to San Francisco, I see something I've never seen before. You know, you almost always at least. Like there's a lot of just stuff happening. Uh, and, and I think people think of a lot of this like new tech stuff as being sort of like just creative. But there's a lot of just like winnowing it down right like driving out small things what's what's on the perception side because it's because that's where it all starts how does that inform how you how you do this work and, and collect the data and, and and all that yeah first of all i think we have a really good evaluation system that directly connect to the safety bus we, we will have a UMO. so every release when we when we try to push out the release we will make sure that it's actually composed to that safety bus so that's that's definitely something we hold very strong upon, and with that keep in mind, um, so so for perception system we have a metric that try to associate that, and we will optimize for that particular metric. Most of the time we are much better than that part, and we we can just uh, keep pushing on that part as well. So there, that's the one one thing. Another thing I also want to mention is that all the Waymo driver is actually essentially the same Waymo driver. So there is an enforced consistency across the, the cars. So you are not, when you're interacting with one Waymo's car, it will be the same as you're interacting with another Waymo's car. So that's a really enforced consistency um, as well. Totally. And so, so I love the previous conversation that was up here because there was so much talk about how when you're in this, you know, automation, driving automation, essentially, whether it's flying or, or on the ground, different form factors, whatever it is, I love that there is a consensus in the industry that like, you have to go in and build relationships wherever it is that you're operating. Those of us who have been coming to this conference for a while know that not all forms of mobility technology have taken that approach, right? And and I remember coming here in the summer of the scooter and everyone thought, you know, dumping a bunch of scooters in the city without asking permission was the way to, you know, untold. And like that just didn't work. And and I think over time we're, we're learning that, you know, mobility is one of those things that's just incorporate. It's part of your community. How you get around is really deeply rooted in your community. And so people feel very strongly about it. And so I'm curious, Brett, I'm not going to ask, I mean, you guys aren't really on the, you know, you guys are doing the tech side. So it's not fair to really ask you guys. And and Brett, I don't want to ask you to represent any groups you may or may not be affiliated with or whatever, but I'm just curious, like, 
what is your perception? And then I'll also ask you to sort of maybe get into what are other people's, what is the community sort of perception and reaction of how Waymo has come into this community? Um, and, you know, I'm sure it's probably everyone doesn't think the same thing, um, but I'm really curious about that because um, it's just such an important piece of this. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting, like the perception, like you follow it in like your own groups, like for example, in the cycling club, you know, there's, I remember like going on a ride and one of the parents had their kids on the back and they were saying, oh, don't like, there's a Waymo behind. I want you to get out of the way. Like they hadn't been inside. It's, it's like this perception of like reading some of the news articles about, you know, you know, cars making mistakes. And, you know, if you haven't been in it, it's like that, that's kind of a scary thing. You see this car without a driver in it behind you. Um, but I would say the overall, the perception is it's like, there's the people that have kind of read about it. They've experienced it. And, you know, I'd see a pretty strong, like pro contingent. They're like, no, these are actually like really safe. They're seeing more than like the average driver does versus the other ones that are like, oh man, it's like, did you see that? There's like no driver in that car. And like all the time you see tourists like snapping pictures and standing in front of it. And like the car is just, you know, sitting there like as they like take photos. But it was kind of interesting to see like this kind of contingent of like people that have like experienced it and they know like how complex and how, how much it sees. And the people on the other side that see the news articles are like, oh, did you hear another one like got stuck in cement or this one blocked a certain, you know, an ambulance or something. And like, that I feel like those articles they, they tend to kind of like remnant in like people's minds they, they kind of latch onto those mercies like you know the everyday like you know it's like these are you know almost 24 7 they're they're roaming the streets they're collecting data they're getting better and like it's, it's a really cool experience if you you know get to try it out yeah go ahead please oh I wanted to actually talk to like the outreach that I've done I know that is surprising coming from an engineer but I actually spend a lot of time like talking with these communities and like i actually am here because i want to hear from you guys i have um talked with various cycling and uh pedestrian groups and the various cities we work in to hear like what their concerns are like what are they worried about um and not me personally but uh one of my co-workers a couple of my co-workers actually do a lot of round tables with disability groups um, and make sure that we understand the needs of the community that we're working in um, and not just working in our own little bubble off of our own assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the features that, that Waymo has developed here, specifically in San Francisco, which again, just such a different environment than, than where you've been operating previously, is um, a, a feature that's specific to cyclists. And, and um, I assume this you know, came out of both, you know, the data gathering, but then also, and I'm really glad you highlighted it. And it's so cool. I actually didn't know. I assumed that maybe like, you know, there was a team that went out and got stuff and filtered it back to you. But the fact that you as a, as an engineer are going out and getting that firsthand input is to me, I think that's super cool and, and exactly what you want to see. Um, really quick before we run out of time, I wanted to have more time to talk about this. T tell me about this feature that you developed specifically for cyclists. Obviously everything in your system is developed around keeping cyclists safe, but this is one that is particular for cyclists. And if you've ridden a car in a city, it, you know it addresses like one of the scariest possible scenarios. I, I don't know who, who best to, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the safe exit feature is something we developed because dooring uh, is a huge issue in San Francisco. And in fact, many cities, um, for folks who don't know, you know, when someone opens the door into a scooter or a skateboarder or a cyclist and then they're thrown into the road um and so we have uh two forms of communication we use 
um, to help prevent dooring. The first one is when the Waymo pulls over, uh, it shows on the dome a passenger exiting. So that way, if you're approaching, you know there's a higher, as a, as a, a other road user, you know someone might get out. Um, and the other thing that we do is whenever there's a cyclist or a vehicle or scooter approaching, we also ping in the vehicle to let the uh, passenger know so that they actually know, like, hey, if you open the door now, like, it's unsafe. Um, and so we have those two modalities of communication to let folks know, like, hey, don't don't cause this issue um, and try and actively give all parties involved as much information as possible. Absolutely. And and again, like, you know, this is something with the, the hardware, uh, sensing hardware that you all have. You have the capability to prevent these things in a way that even for a human driver, it's so hard to be sure that you're not going to accidentally do this with someone. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I really wanted to get into some like big picture questions about about whether or not AVs and micromobility can can share the road together. But I think, you know, this conversation has already shown sort of some of the ways to make that happen. And really, ultimately, that's a conversation that has to be much bigger than the four of us. So hopefully we've been able to kind of start that and hopefully you all can continue to have that conversation amongst each other. And, uh, you know, as a society, we'll have that conversation, I think, for for decades to come. And I think it'll be a really exciting and fascinating one. So thank you all so much. This has been so much fun. Um, I've just had an absolute blast and uh, hopefully we can discuss this all some more soon. Thank you.